You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church Podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. For the last three weeks, we are in what's known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, And in the Lord's Prayer, we have a a pattern uh, in which Jesus teaches us how to pray. Uh, We looked at uh, the the emphasis on adoration and submission and dependence. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is given in response to the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he teaches them this pattern to pray, not of rote memory, but of the kind of the rhythm of our prayer life, that we we adore God, that we submit ourselves to his kingdom and to his will, and that we express our dependence on him and our daily needs and for forgiveness of sin and uh, for uh, redemption and, and, um, and, and strengthening from temptation. And, and now we're going to transition uh, to what's known as the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's somewhat... Um, a little bit of a misnomer to call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 uh, the Lord's Prayer because it's not actually a prayer that Jesus could pray. Uh, you see the, the Lord's Prayer uh, at, the, um, at the heart of it is a sense of our dependence on God expressed in our need for forgiveness and our need for being adopted into God's family. Jesus has no need uh, for forgiveness, though certainly he models dependence on God in his lifetime. Uh, but some people point to John 17 as, uh, as indeed the Lord's Prayer because not only does uh, he teach us to pray, but he shows us what he prays for us. Uh, over 21 prayers of Jesus are recorded in the scriptures, and John 17 is the most in-depth and detailed prayer that we have recorded, and it takes us into the very relationship of the Godhead, particularly between the Father and the Son. Um, and in the context of uh, the Gospel of John, really in John, starting in John 14, we begin to see Jesus teaching his disciples uh, on um, just kind of some basic issues of what it means to follow him. And at the core of that is the, the sending of the Spirit. Uh, and, uh, and so we have this kind of Trinitarian picture in John 14 through 17 of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're kind of let in to the inner working of God and this relationship between uh, the second person of the Godhead in Jesus and the, uh, the first person of the Godhead in the Father as Jesus comes to the Father and prays uh, for, for Him to be glorified and then intercedes on our behalf. And I'm excited for us to look at this passage over the next few weeks. Uh, but for us today, we begin uh, by looking at verses 1 through 5. But kind of as a preview of John 17 as a whole, uh, that we've heard uh, verses 1 through 5 read, as a whole, what we're going to see is, is that Jesus prays that God the Father might be glorified through His people being united, being one in Christ, being sanctified by the world, by the Word, excuse me, that would be a different sermon, <clears throat> and then sent into the world. Jesus prays that God the Father might be glorified through His people being united, being one in Christ, being sanctified by the Word, and being sent into the world. In so many ways, as we think about 
approaching Easter and what Christ has accomplished for us and, and how in the resurrection we, we not only rest in the completed work of Christ, but we are sent with the work of God, the mission of God to carry on in the world as we await for his return. Here we see Jesus before he goes to the cross interceding on our behalf and who we are called to be and the work we are called to do. We have the confidence and we have the encouragement to know that Jesus has prayed for us and is interceding on our behalf. And so to begin, we look in verse 1 and it says that Jesus spoke these things, looking up to heaven, taking the posture of prayer and says, Father, the hour has come. Verse 1 emphasizes that the time for Jesus to be glorified had arrived. Uh, This language of the hour uh, is common throughout the Gospel of John. It it begins all the way in John chapter 2. Maybe you've uh, read through the Gospels or you're familiar with um, the first sign or miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is kind of patterned after these seven signs that Jesus does. He does all kinds of miracles, but John emphasizes these seven particular ones that reveal Jesus's glory um, and, and demonstrate his power and authority as the Son of God. And the first of them is when Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, most likely due to the relationship that Mary, uh, his mother, had with the, uh, the, the wedding party. He's there in the, the party. They run out of wine um, and uh, and and they call Mary calls upon Jesus to turn uh, to do something and uh, and and Jesus turns the water into wine and it uh, reveals uh, his his glory at least to those who were aware of it but most people didn't know it was him they just thought the wedding party uh, went above and beyond and provided the best wine last um, I don't know if you guys have seen the show the calling or the chosen one um, that's um, that kind of uh, tells the story of Jesus um, I think the first season's available on uh, prime uh, for free and there's another uh, uh, streaming service you can watch it on but we just watched this episode a few weeks ago and just striking to see uh, as Jesus uh, turns the water into wine the the small group of people that were familiar with what were happening how were they were just stunned and amazed uh, at what was taking place, looking at Jesus going, who is this person? But in that whole situation, when, when Mary first requests for Jesus to, to do something, uh, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. The, the hour for which I have come isn't arrived yet. And so even from the beginning, Jesus is aware of why he has come. You know, some people, uh, if you've heard them say this, they'll look at the at the Gospels and they'll say, well, the Gospels is just kind of the disciples reading back into the words of Jesus and telling us what they think uh, uh, they think he meant by it. Or 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 maybe they took the words of Jesus and we've made it to mean something else. Uh, Or Jesus was a a prophet and, you know, a wandering cynic who taught uh, people good things like in the Sermon on the Mount and. Um, you know, and but, but kind of all the stuff about him being God and, and those kind of things, that was his followers later kind of putting that back on him. Well, if you just honestly read the Gospels and give them a fair shake for what they say, Jesus from the beginning was conscious of who he was and was conscious of why he came. And he came for an hour, not a literal hour, but for a specific time that now in John 17, 1, he says at the beginning he said the hour hadn't arrived, but here in John 17, 1, he says the hour has come. 
You see, the hour that he refers to is, is referencing God's plan in eternity past, in which he determined that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, who would, who would come and take on uh, human flesh, adding to his glory the form of a, serp, of a servant, uh, taking on human flesh, and he would come for the sake of completing God's plan of redemption. The hour refers to, the, uh, to, to what is known as Jesus' passion, what we remember at Easter, his uh, betrayal and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection and his subsequent exaltation. The hour refers to the, to the very reason that Jesus came and it showcases the inner working and the intimacy within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in which God planned in eternity past to accomplish our salvation. And here in John 17, the focus is on the Father and the Son. But if you read John 14 and John 16, you'll see that the work of the Father and the Son can't be understood apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 16, verses 13 through 15, if you flip back one chapter, it says Jesus teaching the disciples about the Spirit says, When the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears He will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and what is the father's and he will declare it to you. You see this interworking, this interweaving between God being one God, the one true God. Uh, as it'll say in verse 3, that, that eternal life is knowledge of the one true God. That one true God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the revelation of who God is in his word and has been the confession of the church uh, for ages past and on which we stand today. And the heart of it is revealed right here in the Gospel of John. So the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. And here's his prayer. In, the, in this moment, as he is preparing himself to, to go to the cross, he's preparing himself for the betrayal that's to come. If, if you go and look in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, in particular the way uh, it's structured, you'll see Jesus was repeatedly telling his disciples on the way to Jerusalem Three times in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 8 and in Mark 9 and in Mark 10, Jesus looks to the disciples and he says, here's what's going to come. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be handed over uh, to the, the Sadducees and Pharisees. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus knew what was to come. And it's in this moment, think about this. In the moment uh, the hour has arrived for Jesus' crucifixion, the, the most unjust act that's ever happened in the world, that the perfect sinless Son of God would be betrayed and, and put upon a criminal's cross and die a death that He didn't deserve to die for sinners like you and me who deserve the death that He received. In that moment, Jesus demonstrates dependence on the Father. In in this moment, before all of this transpires, Jesus is before the Father in prayer. Our prayer isn't exactly the same as Jesus, but what a lesson there is for us. If Jesus in the hour 
before his crucifixion is dependent on the Father in prayer, how, how can we ever think that we could face whatever hour is before us, whatever trial is before us, whatever cross that we must bear before us without the humility to say, God, I need you. And here in this moment, Jesus prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. You see, it's also instructive as Jesus goes to the cross for our sin. No doubt here in a moment, we're going to see how Jesus is indeed praying for us and for our good. But understand that God from the beginning has been working out all things. Not with us at the center, but with his name and his glory at the center of all things. That's, that is what's on Jesus' mind as he expresses his dependence on God. He says, glorify your son, glorify me so that I might glorify you. The interdependence and interworking of the Godhead in, in all of this, he's saying that God may be glorified in all things. And 1 Corinthians 15, if you go and look there, Jesus is saying, let me finish the work that I've done. Let me, through my, my uh, crucifixion and ultimately my resurrection, uh, conquer all things and then put all things under your feet, Lord, that you may be glorified in all. As the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. And just like Jesus said in John 16, the, the Spirit comes, is sent by the Father and the Son so that the Son might be glorified, who in turn desires that God the Father might be glorified. That in all things God might get the glory, right? It, it, you, you're like, Michael, you're repeating yourself. And the scriptures repeat themselves because God is to be glorified. In fact, throughout the history of the church, uh, we've understood that Jesus gives not only God's purpose and plan for all things, but he gives us our purpose in life. In the Westminster Catechism, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, this uh, simple and profound statement was taken by a pastor in later years. His name's John Piper, and a small edit was made. Not because he thought it was wrong, but because he wanted to demonstrate the means by which this takes place. He said, not only do we, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but he changed and to buy, that we glorify God by enjoying him forever. And, and here, in, in this moment, what we're seeing, when, when Jesus prays, let the Son be glorified, that the Father might be glorified, what he's doing is he's, he's referencing God's glory, but it's not talking just about God's glory. He's talking about God being glorified. So what do we mean by God, the Son being glorified, that the Father might be glorified? Well, let's first understand God's glory. God's glory is the fullness of who he is. It's all of his attributes in their perfection. It's his holiness. It's his justice. It's his grace. It's his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his goodness, all of it in its fullness and in its perfection. I love the definition that uh, Piper gives in reference to this when he says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It's the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many and, uh, and various perfections, all of his attributes. The simplest way is to say it, it's the fullness of who God is and all of his attributes. 
That's God's glory. And, and describing God's glory is, is more like describing, it's not like describing a basketball, you know, it's round, it's got these lines on it, it goes in, unless you're Arkansas playing Duke, it doesn't go in enough, and then you lose, and uh, that's another story, but go uh, Wolverine ladies uh, uh, representing us uh, in, the, uh, in the women's tournament. But uh, that's one thing to describe a basketball. That's another thing to describe beauty. The fullness of, of, of what something is and all of its perfections. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about God's glory. It's the fullness of who he is. So what does it then mean for God to be glorified? God's glory is the fullness of who he is and all of his attributes. Well, for God to be glorified is that the fullness of who he is might be seen and responded to. That it might be celebrated. The, the, the prayer that Jesus prays that, that he would be glorified, that the Father might be glorified, is that we would then be able to see and praise God for who he is and for what he's done for us. In, in, the, uh, in the passage that, that follows, we're going to see how God's glory is revealed in, in the granting of eternal life and in the work that Jesus came to do, which ultimately points to the cross, as well as to see God's glory in its exaltation. Jesus is praying that... that he might display the fullness of who God is, that we might be let in to see in the, in the work that Jesus accomplishes in his final hour of his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. Here we're getting a glimpse of who God is in his fullness. And Jesus is praying that we might be able to see and treasure the fullness of who God is. That God's love and holiness might be displayed. That His mercy and justice would be displayed. And not only be displayed, but that those who see it might delight in it. That those who see it would say, that is worthy of praise and celebration. That's what the time uh, before Jesus has, uh, the time, the hour before Jesus has come for His crucifixion and His resurrection. And here in this moment, He prays that we might be able to see and celebrate all that God is and the fullness of his perfection and of his character, that we would see it and we would delight in it. So the hour of glory has come, but it's not going to be a coronation that displays the glory. It's going to be a crucifixion that displays the glory. And Jesus shows us three ways in which we can see and treasure God's glory here, starting first in verse 2, that we see God's glory in the granting of eternal life. The granting of eternal life. It says, <clears throat> first, the, it points to the source um, of, of eternal life. As it says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you gave him, Jesus, the authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. See, it says Jesus has authority over all flesh. There's not a person alive or has ever lived whom Jesus hasn't had all authority over. The only difference is those who willfully receive and accept his authority and those who refuse his authority. But Jesus, make no mistake, has authority over all people. Sometimes in my house, um, when my children don't listen, I ask them, who's in charge? And they say, mom. And I say, that's right. <clears throat> they say, mom and dad, right? You guys are in charge. And I say, that's right. 
And, and, and as God says that to us here, He doesn't say it in a way that lords it over us. Because here's how Jesus wields His authority over us. He wields His authority over us in granting us eternal life. How good is that? The God who is in charge of all things, the one who has all authority, including over us, demonstrates His authority, exercises His authority, and that He grants eternal life. And this means because Jesus has all authority, there's no one else who can give eternal life. No one else has the ability to give eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, when Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And he, tells, he says, from now on you have seen him. And Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Just show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you for so long, Philip, and yet you don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works that I do. He's saying, I am the way. I am the one who grants eternal life and no one else grants eternal life because no one else has the authority. He alone has the authority to grant eternal life. And what good news that the one who is in charge stands ready to give freely and graciously eternal life to all who will receive, receive it, all who will ask. Believe me, Jesus says. We see the source of eternal life and the authority of Jesus, but also the sovereignty of Jesus. As it says in John chapter uh, 17, verse 2, not only does he have the authority over all flesh so that he grants eternal life, but he grants eternal life to everyone whom the Father has given him. Here we see uh, the beautiful doctrine that the scriptures call election, that God the Father has given to the Son whom he wills. This reveals that God sovereignly elects whom he wills. It's a doctrine that's meant to confront us just as much as sometimes it confounds us. It's meant to to comfort us, I should say, not confront us. It it comforts us in knowing that, that God has chosen us, not on the basis of any merit that we offer, but on the basis of his sovereign and free grace. And the only way we know who is chosen by the Father in terms of our experience on this world, in this world, the only way we can know whom the Father has chosen is is to know whom has responded to the gospel. We say God has chosen whom He wills, therefore we preach the gospel to all. Because the only way we know whom He chooses is those who choose and in turn trust in and believe Jesus as their Savior. And it's because of the sovereignty of God... Because the Father has given to Jesus those whom He wills, this means not only is He the only one that can give eternal life, but no one can take eternal life from us. If Jesus is sovereign and He grants eternal life, no one can take it. This is what John chapter 10, verse 28 through 30 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Here it is again. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. What a, what a beautiful picture. Just as the son is glorified, therefore the father is glorified. Guess what? You're, you're in the, the hand of the son and in the, the, son, the hand of the son is in the hand of the father. No one can take you out of it. 
That's the confidence that a a child of God has. That because God the Father has given us to Jesus, there's no one else who can take eternal life from us. Paul says as much in Romans 8, 32. He said, "He He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, those whom God has chosen? No one. It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Only Christ Jesus can condemn. And you know what? The one who can condemn you was condemned in your place on the cross. So that if Jesus is the only one who condemned, he's the one who also died. More than that, he was raised and now is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who can separate you from the love of God? No one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's glory is revealed in his granting of eternal life, but it goes on in verse 3. It's like uh, there's this pause that explains what eternal life is in greater detail because now we see the nature of eternal life in verse 3. This is eternal life. It's always helpful. You're like, okay, this is it. Um, The one whom you have sent, this, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only True God, the one whom and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, the nature of eternal life is knowledge of God. And and this knowledge of God, knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, this is the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty one. Notice what Jeremiah 31 says. This is back in the Old Testament. God said, uh, as Israel was uh, in exile, God's going to come and rescue you. He's going to send his Savior and redeem you. And he's going to make a new covenant. And that new covenant says this. I will put my law within them. They've disobeyed my law, the Mosaic covenant. But now I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. There's no mediated knowledge of God, but instead each one will say, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And we can know him because he says, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. You see, knowledge comes through Jesus. But it's not just a knowledge of abstract ideas about Jesus. Yesterday morning, we gathered with our men and we are studying John 11. And we saw there in John 11 that, that Jesus isn't interested in abstract ideas about him. But a, uh, this is knowledge of a personal God, a personal relationship with God. It's talking about a quality of life. And not just the, 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 the quantity of it, but in John 10.10, 10, it says the thief comes to still kill and destroy. Jesus came that... We may have life and have it abundantly. And in John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You have to stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus says that when we trust in him, we will experience new life. The kind of quality of life that that even when our physical body dies, we will live forever. And the kind of quality of life that means once you believe in him, you start living and you never die, no matter what happens to your body. And we ultimately know in the scriptures that while our body will uh, ultimately die and be put on the ground, and one day when Jesus returns, we'll be raised with resurrected bodies, just like Jesus was, and we'll experience the knowledge of God and the presence of God for all eternity. 
Do you believe this? You could ask it in two ways. You could put the emphasis on you. Do you believe this? You could put the emphasis on this. Do you believe this? This truth about what eternal life is. About knowing God and being known by him. What is eternal life? 1 John 5, 11 through 12. Uh, in one of his letters, he says, This is a testimony that God gave us eternal life and it's life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. And not only that, Romans 6.23 says, Though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is found in Christ alone and eternal life is received by faith alone. Do you believe this? Have you received eternal life through Jesus? That's his offer today. The fullness of God's glory is revealed in that God grants eternal life to anyone who will receive Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Friend, if you don't know him, if you haven't received him, if you're not confident and comforted by the truth of eternal life that's found in Jesus, you don't have to go and do something. There's not a box to check. There's not a list to fulfill. The invitation is as simple as the words of Jesus, receive me. Whoever believes has the Son. And if you have the Son, you have life, and that life can never be taken from you. And we know this life that comes through Jesus is secured for us through the cross. And that takes us to verse 4. Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The work you gave me to do. Jesus is in some ways similarly talking, just like he talked about the hour has come. The work that he has been called to do is the totality of what he's done in his life. But it's somewhat uh, both talking about the past as well as the future. And he's speaking of it in terms of as if it's completed, being confident of what's to happen. Uh, From the beginning, Jesus displayed God's glory through his birth, his miraculous incarnation, his perfect obedience to the Father while on the earth, his teaching that was full of grace and truth, his miracles which demonstrated his power and his glory. And then ultimately, all of this is heading to the cross where Jesus will display God's glory through the crucifixion and resurrection. And we know that he's here saying he's completed the work that he's gave me to do. But we know on, it's not until John 19 that Jesus utters the words as he hangs on the cross. It is finished. It's complete. The work that he was sent to do, the hour for which he had come, is in reference to the cross. You see, it's in the cross that Jesus reveals God's glory in its fullness because it's there that we see God's uncompromising and holiness as well as abounding in love. It's on the cross that we have no doubt that God is both just and merciful. It's in the the cross that we know that God, no question, is righteous. And without a doubt, is gracious 
It's there that the, the glory of God is revealed. Because it's there that Jesus completes the work that he came to do. On the cross, Jesus did all that was necessary for you and for me to know him and to be known by him. All we can contribute to our salvation is to humbly bring our sin and acknowledge we need a savior. Everything else was done by him on the cross. And, and in showing us God's glory through completing the work, I also, I, here's a word for not only our salvation, but also for our sanctification. Because here we see a pattern for the Christian life. Here we see the gut level honest truth about life in this world and about life following Jesus. The pattern that we see in Jesus being glorified in the cross is a, a pattern for the Christian life. It's suffering followed by glory. You see, it's, it's through the valley of the shadow of death by way of the cross that Jesus must pass on his way to glory. It's on the road of suffering that Jesus must go in order to be glorified. And to follow Jesus is to follow him on that path. It's to follow him on the path to the cross. I don't mean this to beat us down with negativity. I say this to encourage us so that we won't be downcast when we go through our own valleys and our own sufferings, but instead we'll lift our head and we'll fix our eyes on Jesus. One author, Tony Reiki, he was talking about, he was kind of applying our pursuit of self-glory and our use of technology. We might put this article in our, um, our sermon um, blog post that we follow up each week with, but uh, that's not the point of what I'm saying here. <laughs> his, his point that he made in reference to what it means, what Christianity offers us in relation to this pattern of the Christian life. He said, here's the bottom line about Christianity. Finding a glory that will sustain our soul. That's what Christianity offers. Finding a glory that will sustain our souls. Most of us know that Christianity doesn't make a lot of promises to us. It has a lot of promises that God fulfills, but it doesn't necessarily promise us that everything in life is going to be good and easy. It doesn't promise to, uh, to fix all of our problems, to fix our marriage or fix our kids or end of all, all of our anxieties. It doesn't promise to take away all of our sin struggles or expel every, everything that we struggle with. It may indeed do those things, and God has the power to do those things as we submit ourselves to Him. But there's no promise as to how it's going to work out, when it's going to work out, and exactly what God is going to do. It doesn't give us any guarantees uh, of uh, having all of our questions answered. It doesn't tell us that all of our problems will be solved. It doesn't advise us on all of life's most important questions of, um, of where we're to live and where we're to work and what degree we're to pursue, what career we're to chase, who we're to marry, what car we're to buy. And we talked about all those things. We need wisdom for those things, but we don't have the, the answer uh, just given to us. Following Christ probably isn't going to make you wealthy and healthy and popular. In fact, following Jesus said, when you follow me, you can expect troubles. Through many trials and tribulations, we must go on our way to the kingdom of God. Paul taught young believers in the book of Acts. There most likely on the road of following Christ will be disappointment. There most likely will be opposition. 
And Jesus said, those who are a good soldier in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. I don't know what form it'll take for you, for me. But we can expect that, Jesus said. So, Michael, thanks for encouraging us on what Christianity doesn't offer. What exactly are you saying it offers? It offers us a glory that satisfies our soul. If the one thing that it promises without a shadow of a doubt is that we can know that our sins are forgiven. We can know that the guilt and judgment of God no longer rest upon us. We can know that in Christ, that the death of Jesus satisfied God's judgment. We're we're no longer an enemy of God. We're no longer estranged from God. Now we're adopted by God in his family. Now our hearts can be satisfied with something that this world can't take away. And that's the, the glory of God revealed in Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't uh, die just to satisfy our, our old desires for glory and in ourself. He, he dies to give us a new glory, a new satisfaction of seeing and beholding him for who he is. Christianity offers us something that this world can't take away from us, that our disappointments and our trials and our sufferings can't shake. We may stumble and fall on our road following Jesus on the cross. But we have the hope and promise that he's there to pick us up. And he's there to carry us through. Because through suffering comes glory. And if you ever think that you can bypass that and just get the glory. You might be hearing the voice of Satan. Who told Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple. Just, just throw yourself down. It'll all be taken care of. Just bow down to me and I'll give you glory without the cross. Jesus shows us the pattern of the Christian life. And then ultimately shows us God's glory and his exaltation. It says in verse 5 that he prays that he might return to the Father and to the glory that he had in his presence that he enjoyed before the world existed. Here we see the, the, the eternal pre-existence of Jesus. And, and here we see Jesus asking the Father, Return me to the glory I had and shared in your presence before eternity began. You see, when Jesus came into this world, he did not, uh, he did not set aside his divinity, but he took on, it says in Philippians 2, the, he took on the form of a servant. He took on human flesh and came and dwelt among us. But now he is returning and returning to the glory he shared with the Father. But now he's returning with a body. Jesus didn't have a body before the incarnation. But since the incarnation and for all eternity, he's got a body. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is going to be raised from the dead and exalted and ascend into heaven where he will sit at the right hand of the Father, the Scriptures tell us, and he will enjoy the, pre- the, the glory and the presence of God that he had before the world existed. That's where he's headed. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He was returning to the, the glory that he enjoyed in the presence of the Father, that together they enjoyed in the Godhead for all eternity. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he prays that we might know and enjoy that ourselves with him. But as we think about Jesus' exaltation, you see the work of Christ that was completed on the cross 
and, and, and displayed in vindication through the resurrection. When Jesus is exalted and ascends into heaven, he continues his work. I, I love the picture here at the, at the beginning of John 17 and throughout John 17 because it's a picture of Jesus as our intercessor. You see in his prayers, which we see uh, in, a, uh, in a full way here in John 17, Jesus intercede in our, on our behalf that we would be kept from the evil one, that we'd be sanctified by the truth, that we would experience his love, that we would bear witness to him. He's interceding for us. The work we're called to do, Jesus has prayed for us. But we also see in his death that he intercedes for us, that he is our mediator. He died in our place for our sin. He laid down his life and he will take it back up again. He's our intercessor in his death. But in his exaltation, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says that Jesus ever lives to intercede on our behalf. When the, when, when the son is seated at the right hand of God, what is he doing? He's interceding. In John and Hebrews 7, it says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But Jesus is priest forever because he lives forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Romans 8.34, we saw it earlier. They said, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God? What's he doing? Interceding for us. As our intercessor, I love the picture of Luke chapter 22, 31 through 32, just before Jesus goes to the cross and Peter and all of his pride and defiance tells Jesus how brave he's going to be and how he's not going to turn away from him and he's going to be bold. You ever been there? I'm going to be bold for you. And then you find yourself falling on the ground. I'm living for God. And then all of a sudden my living for God looks like a train wreck and a nightmare. What do I do? Listen to these words by Jesus to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. How about those words? How about those words put wind in our sails to hear Jesus say to his children, I have prayed for you. Better yet, I am praying for you. Based on the words of Jesus in Luke 22 and here in John 17, think about this and let this encourage us as we close today. Jesus intercedes for us. 1 John 2, 1, it says, He advocates for us that even though we still sin, we have a perfect righteousness in Christ. Jesus, our intercessor. Luke 22 says that he prays for us that even though we face many temptations, that we wouldn't shipwreck our faith, that we would not fail, that we would stand strong. Jesus is our intercessor. John 17 tells us that he prays that we might be united. Here's another sermon for next week. So we can be confident to walk through the messiness of biblical community and show grace and forgiveness to one another. Jesus is our intercessor. John 17 verse 13 says that he prays that we might find our joy in him. So that means we can confidently turn from seeking joy in lesser things in this world and be confident that when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to God, listen to me, I think this might be the number one fear for many people that keeps them back from wholehearted devotion to God. 
we think that when we give ourselves fully to him, that it'll be a killjoy rather than the fulfillment of all joy. Jesus is our intercessor. In John 17, 17, he prays that we might be sanctified by the truth. So therefore, we don't lose heart in the ups and downs of growing in Christ because Jesus is our intercessor. And in John 17, 20 through 21, he prays that we might be faithful in our witness so we can be bold in sharing the gospel because we're confident that God will draw people to himself. Jesus is our intercessor. He ever lives to intercede for us. And through his perfect work on the cross, he lives so that he might display God's glory to us, that we might in turn respond and praise and delight ourselves in it. The purpose for which Jesus came is to glorify himself that the Father might be glorified. Friends, this is our purpose. To glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. Let's pray.